Well, go ahead and take out your Bibles and your, uh, your sermon notes. We are in a series called Overcomers Win. And we have been talking about kind of changing our life view, changing our worldview in such a way that we see God as actively involved in our lives, um, in the circumstances of our day-to-day living, that God is there and God is working with us to help us overcome and to mold us into the people that he wants us to be. Well, Roland talked about three things a couple of weeks ago when he introduced this series that are obstacles that all of us need to work on overcoming. They're challenges that all of us face. One is a real enemy that is bent on our destruction. Number two is our own brokenness. We're broken, we're we're sin-filled people and we struggle with that. And that, that takes us the wrong way. And number three is the culture around us, which sometimes is screaming messages that are exactly the opposite of the messages that we hear from God. And that's what I want to focus on primarily this morning. I want to take a look at how does God's kingdom intersect with our life here in Southern California? And, and where are the conflicts? And, and what do we need to be aware of? And how do we actually live the kingdom life in Southern California. There's three things I want to really address with you this morning. First is, you know, what, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, what does that even mean? Number two, how do we experience the kingdom of God in our own life? And then we'll spend the majority of our time talking about the practical implications of how does that intersect with life in Southern California. So, in the book of Mark, chapter 1, Almost immediately, Jesus bursts on the scene, and it says this, Jesus declares that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus says, I have come to bring the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven like, and what does that mean? I jotted down just a couple of things. It's a place where you experience God as your father. It's a place where there's love and forgiveness. A place where God rules, where there's justice and righteousness. It's a place where God's will is done. It's beauty. There's no disease, no war, no suffering, no violence, no lives broken by addiction. It's the kingdom of heaven, it's perfect. And Jesus said that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven. So my question to you is, did Jesus bring the kingdom of heaven? Okay, nobody wants to play. (laughs) Did did Jesus bring the kingdom of heaven? Okay, let me ask a second question. Is Jesus still bringing the kingdom of heaven? Now more people are playing, that's good. Uh, Third question, will Jesus ultimately completely bring the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Okay, good. Now, Now we're all there. If you answered yes to all three of those things, you're right. We could say that the kingdom of heaven is now, but not yet. 
The kingdom of heaven is now, but still coming. Jesus is still bringing the kingdom, but he, bring, he brought the kingdom 2,000 years ago, and he's still bringing it today. So that leads us to the question, how do we experience that kingdom? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty great description, right? How do we experience that? Matthew 3.1, John the Baptist says this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 4.17 says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus in Mark 1.15 returns from his temptation in the wilderness and immediately says this, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So how do we come into the kingdom of heaven? It's a clue. <laughs> repent, right? We repent. So, so here's a critical question. What does that mean? What does the word repent mean? There's a couple of definitions. There's a couple of meanings to the word repent. Okay? It means to change your mind. So Jesus came to change our mind. <clears throat> about what? <clears throat> about what's important in life. Jesus came to change our mind about what's important in life. The second meaning is it means to turn around, to go the other direction. And the vision is this, the, the imagery is this, that, that we're walking this way and we're going this way and we're following the world and Jesus says, turn around and go the other way. Jesus literally came to turn your life around. So you gotta ask a question, has Jesus turned your life around? Is he turning your life around? Are you going this direction still? Because it doesn't say this. Jesus does not say, I came to walk with you on your journey in Southern California in this world. I came to put my arm around you and to just follow that California dream together. That is not the imagery of scripture. Jesus came to turn your life around to help you to go the other way. So this morning, we wanna look at how these things intersect and what does it mean to go the other way. For those of you who are followers of Christ, this morning will be challenging for you. Okay? You need to ask yourself, have you really changed your mind about what's important in life? You gotta ask yourself, has God really turned my life around? Do I even really want him to turn my life around? And for those of you who are guests, who are visiting with us, those of you who maybe you've been here for a while, but you haven't crossed that line of faith yet. This morning will be great. I'm so glad that you're here because we're gonna paint a contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Southern California. And you're gonna see what life in the kingdom is like. And you get to choose, that's the great thing. God leaves it up to you to choose and decide which direction you'll go. So there's four areas that I wanna kinda of focus on this morning, and these are things that I'm just kinda of dealing with in my own life. I mean, this is gonna be kinda of autobiographical. Uh, there are a lot of different areas that God calls us to change our mind and, and to, to go the other direction. These are just the ones where he's working with me on these things, and the place where I kinda of struggle a little bit and, and where he's working with me. So the first is what I call a changed mission, okay? 
Now, mission statements are big these days, right? I mean, just about any company that you go into, you're going to see the mission statement hanging on the wall. And you go to a seminar, you go to a sales meeting, you go to a meeting on how to run a business, whatever it is, one of the first things they're going to talk about is your mission statement. And they're going to tell you that mission drives your life. And that's true. That's true. Your mission does drive your life. Um, turn in your, in your Bibles to Matthew 4, starting at verse 18. I'm going to read this to you. It says, Now Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Now I'm imagining, you know, if Peter lived in Southern California today, before Jesus came along, if you asked him, Pete, what's your mission statement? What's your mission for your life? He might have said something like this. You know what? I'm a young guy. I got this good fishing thing going. I got a couple of boats. We're, we're kind of, we're doing pretty well at the fishing business. If we can increase that just a little bit, I could buy another couple of boats. And we could capture the market here for fishing in the Sea of Galilee. And I'd like to, to build that and turn that into an enterprise where I could actually start going into the boat production business. And we're going to build so many boats that I'm going to become the biggest boat producer in all of Israel. That's my mission statement. And Jesus comes along and he says, you know, Pete, that's a small mission. I've got something much bigger planned for you. You know, like I say, you go to seminars, you read books and things, and, and you find all kinds of mission statements. This is one I had on my, uh, on my shelf in my bookcase. And it says this. This guy talks about creating the um, compelling vision for your future. He says this. This is his compelling vision for his future. Kind of cool. I enthusiastically jump out of bed every morning full of energy and excitement for the day ahead. Through my daily activity, I'm a husband that my wife is proud of, a father my children look up to, and a friend people can count on. My family is financially secure, physically fit, and emotionally close. We live in a comfortable home on one acre on a postcard-perfect view of the Pacific Ocean. Keep in mind, this is not necessarily what he's doing. This is his vision for the future and where he wants to be in his life. Our home is light and airy with crisp ocean breezes blowing through. Pictures of my family and special moments in, line, in our life line the walls, and the sound of grandchildren fills the house. As I look out the window, I see waves lapping the shore and seals playing on the rocks and surfers in the waves. My days are spent helping people reach their fullest potential. I work only four days a week and take eight weeks vacation each year. For enjoyment, my wife and I travel the world, kick back at our second home in the desert, visit our grandkids, read, and take time to enjoy the beauty of the great outdoors. That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? I kind of like that. But Jesus says, that's a small dream. That's an ordinary dream. Because everybody has that dream. He comes along to say, I've got a mission for you that is way bigger than anything that you've thought. You know, part of my, my job is actually asking people about their dreams. 
It's kind of, it's probably my favorite part of my job. I get to ask people, you know, what are your dreams? What do you hope for? What are you looking forward to in life? What's important to you? And you know what people tell me? More than any other thing, I hear this phrase, and it is almost verbatim across, you know, scores and scores of people. They tell me something like this. You know, Phil, I don't have any big dreams. I, I just want to have a comfortable retirement. I want to say, really? That's it? That's, that's, that's the extent of your dream? I want to have a comfortable retirement. You know, the first day that Roland was here, uh, he said two words that really stuck in, in my mind and, and really got me thinking, and another phrase that followed. Those two words were, comfort kills. And that kind of shook me up a little bit. And then he said this. He said, God has not called us to comfort, but to adventure. And I immediately said, I want to follow that guy. You know? Just kind of like Peter said when Jesus came, I want to follow him. Dropped his nets, left everything, and followed Jesus. Well, what did God end up doing with Peter? He had a bigger mission, didn't he, than cornering the market in the fishing boat business in the Sea of Galilee. He changed the world. Young teenager from obscure little Roman province in the middle of nowhere. And he changed the world because he followed Jesus who said, I will make you fishers of men. You know, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says this. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now, now that sounds like the beginning of a pretty good mission statement to me. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. That sounds like a mission statement that could change the world. That sounds even more compelling than a nice house on a picture postcard, acre view lot um, with the dolphins swimming in front, doesn't it? Well, for me, the first place I get kind of thrown off um, with this Southern California dream is following a small mission, um, a small dream. The second thing that the kingdom of God does is it brings a changed perspective. And we've been talking about this uh, for the last couple of weeks. Changed perspective on what? A changed perspective on, on suffering, a changed perspective on trials and difficulties in our life. You know, as I look around Southern California, what I see is, I call it the quest for peace and comfort, you know? People just don't want to rock the boat. They just want, I just want a comfortable life, you know? Um, you got a hard job, quit. If you got a difficult relationship, you know, just bail on it. Don't volunteer for, you know, this job. That's going to just cause too much stress in your life. In fact, there's a, there's a popular song out right now with the refrain that repeats over and over in the song. I want an easier life. You heard that one? I want an easier life. I want an easier life. There could be no better theme for Southern California than I want an easier life. It's like, really? Is that all that God has for us? I see, the problem with trying to avoid all the stress and give ourselves an easier life, you know, we kind of stress out about what if there's stress? I mean, you know, we, we stress out about there, not, there being 
potentially being stressed in our life when we worry about everything. You know, I mean, think about it. We worry about the, the national debt. We worry about, is there going to be another financial crisis? We worry about, um, you know, are we going to lose our job? Or are we going to be able to retire on time? Or are our kids going to be able to get into the college they want? Or the elementary school they want in this neighborhood, you know? Um, are they going to be able to make the cheerleading squad? I mean, we worry about everything. And what the result is, is we're just, even though we're the most comfortable society in history, probably, we're also the most over-medicated society in history. We have stress and anxiety, and it's killing us. Jesus did not come to deliver us from our troubles. He came to help us overcome our troubles. In fact, Jesus came along and he said, trouble is certain. He guaranteed trouble. In uh, John 16, 33, he says this, in the world you will have trouble, but fear not. I have overcome the world. I mean, that's really what this whole series is about, is overcoming those obstacles that we face. Not avoiding them, but overcoming them. You know, in Matthew 24, uh, verse 9, Jesus is talking to the future leaders of his church. I mean, these are the people he's putting everything in their hands, and he's giving them a pep talk, right? And he's saying, I'm going to go soon, but here's, here's what the deal is for you guys. Here's what he says. They will deliver you to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. In Mark 13, 9, he says, be on guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. I mean, who would sign up for that? But Jesus also said this. Trouble is used by God in our lives to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. And in the midst of that, he promises this, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You know, I was, um, I was talking to Roland last week, and we were kind of reminiscing about uh, a pastor that we used to have, Joe Aldrich, who was kind of a role model for me, a mentor for, uh, for Roland. And I never heard the story before, but Roland said that um, Joe was meeting with a small group of, of you know, his close, uh, close friends and supporters, and he said that uh, he just sensed that God was about to do something in his life. You know, he was really just, he wanted them all to pray that, that whatever it was that God had for him, that he would be open to it and he'd be willing to, and he'd see it and you know, he'd really seize the opportunity because he felt like God just wanted to do something special in his life. Not long after that, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And he looked at this small group of men and he said, this is what we've been praying about. This is what God had for me. I mean, I don't know what it's like to have the kind of faith that sees a diagnosis like that and a life just filled with pain and suffering and ultimately death as this is the answer to my prayer, this is what God brought for me. But Joe saw that as this is how God will refine me, this is how he will make me the kind of person he wants me to be. You know, that's the kind of people that this world needs to see. 
not worry-free people that don't have problems, but people that understand that God is there using those trials to shape them and to mold them into the kind of people that he wants us to be. Christians, do not tell your friends that if they trust Jesus, he'll take your troubles away. It's the opposite. He promises trouble to the people who follow him. It's how he gets us where he needs us to go. How many of you have experienced God's peace in the midst of suffering and trials? You know, look around you. These are the testimonies of people who will tell you that God brings peace in the midst of trouble. And that's something that our Southern California culture knows nothing about. Well, the third thing that the kingdom of God brings and that I'm wrestling with um, and wrestle with from time to time is changed relationships, okay? Changed relationships in this way. God has forgiven us, and he calls us to be forgivers. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18, and he starts his parable saying, interesting, in light of this morning, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on and he tells this parable about a king. And he, the king decided to do a reckoning and to settle all of his accounts, and he called in a slave who it says owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you look back, I mean, suffice it to say, this is a lot of money. This is more than anybody could pay back in an entire lifetime, in a hundred lifetimes. I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of money. And he said, pay it back. And the guy said, I, I can't. And he says, okay, then I'm going to sell you into slavery. I'm going to sell your entire family into slavery to pay back what I can get from this debt. And the guy falls on his knees and he begs the king, please let me try to repay. I'll do everything. I'll do anything. The king didn't just refinance his debt. He forgave it completely. And this guy went on his way. And he found another slave who owed him maybe a couple months worth of wages. You know, he maybe owes him about six, eight thousand dollars. And, um, and he grabs him by the throat and he shakes him and he threatens him and he, he tells him, pay me back. And the guy says, I can't, please. And he begs for mercy. And he takes him and he throws him in jail and he says, you're staying in there until the debt is paid back. And how do you suppose that went with the king and that slave once the king found out about that? It didn't go so well for him. What's the point? God has forgiven us an unpayable debt. And he calls us to be forgivers and to freely offer forgiveness to those around us. You know, if you're here this morning and you're kind of gripped with, with bitterness and resentment, um, if you have kind of, you know, vengeance on, on, on your heart, um, that's an, an indication that you haven't experienced that forgiveness from God um, as, as you should. It's a good chance if your marriage is struggling this morning, you know, that at the root of that struggle is an issue of forgiveness because God calls us to be forgiving and that's what brings relationships together. If you look at life out there in our culture, forgiveness is 
I don't think it's not even a word in, in most people's vocabulary. You know, you get even, right? Um, look at all the you know vengeance movies and the entire movies just just all about settling a score and getting even and taking vengeance on somebody, um, and and the kingdom of heaven is exactly the opposite. Um, a friend of mine recently was talking about a conflict that she was having with her husband, and in the course of that conversation she mentioned a car that he had bought without consulting her and how this really had angered her 10 years ago okay <laughs> seriously and this woman was holding on to this and she wouldn't let it go and it was just it still is it's eating at the fabric of their marriage we need to learn to release those things we need to be forgiving people yeah, you know, we could spend months talking about forgiveness, but the point is, Jesus turns our life around by forgiving us and charges us with becoming forgiving people. Finally, and this is in no way an exhaustive list, but um, we have a changed master. You know, Jesus says, you will have a master. That master will be money or that master will be God, but it will not be both. You cannot serve two masters. You know, there's a reason that Jesus talked more about money than about any other subject. And I think that's because there's no other place in our culture where our culture and the kingdom of God are more at odds is in the area of money. Question, are we, do we struggle with this more or less than they did at Jesus' time? more it's a bigger problem now why because we're wealthier the greater the wealth the greater the struggle that's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into what the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of heaven is at odds with our materialistic culture and um, no place is that bigger than um, than here in Southern California What's the one thing that nobody in Southern California has? Enough. Enough. Okay. They asked um, Jay Rockefeller, you know, one of the wealthiest men ever, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Yeah? And we fall into that all the time. Just a little bit more. If I just had a little bit more, there's... You know, advertisers spend billions of dollars trying to convince you that the stuff that you have isn't good enough, that you need new stuff to replace your stuff. And they have very beautiful people who look really happy who have this stuff, promising that you'll be really happy if you get that stuff too. And we buy this all the time. If we just had a little bit more. There's a uh, phrase that, that any of you who are in sales have heard a lot. I've spent a lot of my life in sales organizations. And the phrase is moving to the next level, okay? And the idea is wherever you are in the organization, you know, there, you need to move to the next level. And the implication is what? It doesn't matter how much you're, what level you're at now, there's always another level that you can get to, right? And so you, you're never supposed to be satisfied with the level where you are. You're never supposed to be content because you're always going to be able to move to the next level. 
you know, when I was 30, um, I looked at somebody and I said, you know, if I just was making the kind of money that that person's making, whew, I would be satisfied. I'd be happy. But then you know what happens? I got to that level and somebody moved the finish line. <laughs> and then I looked over and I said, oh, that, that's it. That's where contentment is. It's over there. If I just had what that person has, you know, but you go over here and you ask this person, are you content? Is contentment here? It's not, it's not here. I think it might be over there. Go talk to that person over there. And so we run around and we're trying to find contentment. But what is contentment? What does contentment mean? Not wanting more. So by definition, if we're looking for contentment, we're not content. We find contentment in our relationship with God. We find contentment in the kingdom of heaven. And this is a, this is a daily struggle in my life, to be content with what I have, to not want more, to not have to move to the next level, um, to not just, you know, just, just a little bit more. It's a parable that Jesus told he said, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I've got an idea. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Is this guy living the Southern California dream or what? He's got it made, right? But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. You know how Jesus started that story? He said, be on guard against every form of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You know, you're all familiar with the story of the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus and says, how do I get to heaven? And they go through this whole dialogue, and Jesus ends up saying, you know, well, you've done pretty good so far. All you've got to do is sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it says the man went away very sad because he was wealthy. And I love what Jesus says to his disciples, the commentary he makes on this guy. After the man leaves, he turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they think that life consists in the abundance of possessions. You know, and that's scary. I mean, we buy into that lie, Right? And we think that money is going to make us happy. We just do. We don't have to be, you know, as rich as, as some of these people. But how's it working for them, you know? How's it working for Charlie or, you know, so, some of the others that, um, you know, that does wealth make you happy? I mean, really? We think that life's going to make us, wealth is going to make us secure. Despite example after example after example, that it doesn't. How many of you know somebody who's, where money made them happy? 
I mean, money has destroyed more lives than, it, than it's helped. Um, and yet we still believe that. And we say, I don't need to be as rich as those people. I just need a little bit more. God says, be content with what you've got. You know, the average person, the average person in America, if you ask them what being a Christian is all about, I think they tell you that there's a bunch of rules that you've got to follow. It's a list of stuff that you've got to do. That's not it at all. Jesus said, I came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. He came to give us the kingdom of heaven. Yet we keep running after the Southern California dream. We need to turn around. To those of you who are guests this morning, those who haven't crossed the line of faith, yet there is a cost to following Jesus. He didn't soft pedal that at all. He was very clear about it. He said, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. There's a cost to following Jesus. But you know what? There's a cost to not following Jesus too. The cost of following Jesus, you know, he expects me to be a forgiver. And that's hard because I want to hang on to the stuff that people did wrong to me. And I, I want to make them pay and I have to let go of that. And, and sometimes that's hard to do and I don't want to do it. What's the cost to not following Jesus? Well, not following Jesus, you become bitter and you become resentful and you perpetuate the cycle of vengeance and violence and evil is spread through your heart and into all of your relationships. There's a cost to not following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus, you give up the right to all of your possessions. That's hard to do, right? I mean, I like hanging on to my possessions. I like my stuff. Jesus says, let it go. He wants me to be generous and to give and to invest my life and my talents and my treasure in serving other people. And sometimes I don't want to do that. And there's a cost to following Jesus. What's the cost to not following Jesus? Well, you get to keep all your stuff and it's all yours and you get to decide what you do with it. And you can hoard it all you want, but your heart becomes small and your spirit becomes poisoned and you shrink down and, and, and life becomes about things and about money. And we've met those people. My dad was one of those people. It turns you inward. There's a cost to not following Jesus and you drown in anxiety trying to protect that money because it'll never make you secure. Cost of following Jesus, I have a changed mission. You know, maybe that mission doesn't involve working 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week. Maybe I don't get that promotion because I'm not willing to do that. It means that I deal ethically and, and honestly in my business dealings and, and maybe I lose that big deal because I deal that way, you know? There's a cost to following Jesus' mission to go in this direction. What's the cost to not following Jesus? Well, you get to, you get to live how you want, right? You get, to, 
you get to give your heart and your soul to your business. And, and you get to compromise in your dealings and you get to, to say whatever you want to close that big deal and you get promoted and you make lots of money. But in the end, it ends up being empty. The company that you put so much time into will lay you off. Or you retire and you're quickly forgotten and everything that you poured your life into vanishes. Cost to follow Jesus. He calls us to obey his words. You know, God puts up, up boundaries. He puts up guardrails around our life. He puts up stop signs. And sometimes we have to say no to things that look so enticing. There's a cost to following Jesus. What's the cost of not following? Well, you get to do whatever you want. You get to chase after whatever you want. And, and you think sin is the way to go. And, and you live a life that appears really fun and exciting. And sin is that way for a time. But eventually the things that people try to take a hold of, take hold of them. And you find yourself addicted. And you find yourself doing things that you said you, you would never do and going places that you said that you would never go. And sin takes hold of you and you find yourself broken and your marriage falls apart and your family relationships fall apart. To follow Jesus, I get his peace. I get a sense of love, God caring for me. The cost of not following I get a bunch of cheap substitutes that the world offers. And in times of biggest crisis, they vaporize and go away. And I'm left with nothing. So the cost of following Jesus is that your old way of living has to die. He comes and he says, you're going this way and I've come to turn your life around. Not just to turn your life around, but to turn the world around through you. Starting with you, God wants to turn the world around. So what do I want you to take away from this morning? One, change your mind. Search yourself and change your mind about what's important in life. Secondly, turn around. Let God turn your life around. You know, maybe you're struggling in an area that, that isn't one of the ones that I mentioned today, but there's so many where God is calling us to turn our life around. You know, how do you practically do that? You know, I find like the small groups that we've got, if you're not in one, so encourage you to, to join one. Um, sitting around a small group with, with some other people, talking about how this actually you know, plays out in our lives, uh, really challenges us. And we find other ways that, that we start to understand the things that God wants us to do. Um, but allow Jesus to turn your life around. You know, you can't just keep going the same direction. Put your arm around Jesus. You know, just, just add a little Jesus to your life. But we're still, uh, we're still headed towards the California dream. It doesn't work that way. He calls us to turn around. To turn our world around. To change our mission. To change our master. And to give it all to him. Lord, I'm tempted to pursue small dreams being comfortable, avoiding pain, accumulating stuff. 
Father, I pray that you would help each one here to pursue big dreams, to follow you with their whole lives, to become fishers of men, to change our world. Lord, we invite you to turn our lives around that we might experience the abundant life in your kingdom. And we'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we go, uh, I wanted to pray for Roland and Patricia. They're leaving on Tuesday for Brazil. Roland's down in uh, Mexico now, uh, meeting with some folks down there, but they're leaving for Brazil on their mission trip on Tuesday. So let, let's um, just pray for them. Father, thank you for uh, the gift of bringing Roland and Patricia into our, um, into our midst here at ABF. And Father, I pray as they go this week that they would be blessed, Father, that in their making disciples, in their um, making fishers of men, uh, this next week, I pray that you would bear much fruit. Use both Roland and Patricia in the way that, that you've gifted them, Father, to, uh, to train the leaders, to have an impact in the people's lives. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing in Brazil, uh, around the world. And um, Lord, you are doing great things to turn this world around. Use Roland and Patricia this week to do just that. In Christ's name, amen. As you go today, uh, make a commitment. Grab somebody today and just talk about the message this morning with them. Just reinforce it in your head. What area does God need to turn you around in and change your mind? And have that conversation today. Go with the Lord. God bless you.